Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Grant Rosenberg, author of the debut novel, Gideon. Grant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Gideon, how would you describe the novel? Well, it centers on a, uh, a young woman named Kelly Harper, who's a doctor. She runs a clinic in San Francisco with her father. Uh, everything is going fine until her father is murdered. And then after his murder, she's stunned to find out that uh, he had a double life. It was a very dangerous and violent double life. And uh, this revelation puts her in dire jeopardy. Um, and now she's got to cross moral and ethical lines to, and protect, to protect herself and her sister and really embrace her father's uh, dark past to save her own life. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Gideon? Well, it, I love the idea, the sort of Hitchcockian idea of taking a normal person and dropping them into an abnormal situation and certainly dropping a, a 33-year-old doctor who has pledged to save lives into a situation where she potentially has to take someone else's life. Um, I found that uh, to be very rich fodder. Um, Interestingly, because my background is in television as a writer and producer, I originally wrote this as a spec one-hour pilot, sort of along the lines of Dexter. And what made you decide to turn it into a novel? Uh, well, first of all, no one wanted to buy the <laughs> Um And after writing probably 100 hours of television, I always had a desire to write prose to write a novel and there's scripts are very very lean when it comes to prose they're really sort of roadmaps for actors and directors and the crew where uh and so you can't really explore the inner inner thoughts of uh of a character you explore it visually as the actor or actress brings it to screen but uh i wanted to take a shot at uh, writing a novel and I always loved this idea, so I pulled it out of the trunk and, and novelized it. That's great. And now that you've done that, do you plan on writing more novels? The sequel is in the hands of my agent and editor. So once I finished Gideon, I realized that I hadn't finished telling the story. And once I wrote the, the sequel, I realized that it's really a three-part story to tell. So I envision this as a, uh, as a trilogy, at which point um, I'll move on to something else. And what were some of the projects that you remember the most from your time working in television? Um, I was an executive. I was a studio executive for 12 years at Paramount and at Disney in the television division. Uh, I was a senior creative executive. So I was involved in the development of uh, shows like Star Trek, the the second version of star trek i'm not quite that old and uh <laughs> macgyver was a big one um and i ended up uh writing a few episodes of macgyver and star trek next generation um and i spent four years on lois and clark as a writer producer and then ended up in canada working on um paranormal and science fiction shows like poltergeist and outer limits and the dead zone and um I sort of ended up staying in Canada as a, uh, as a showrunner. That's great. Well, I'm, I know that this is about your, your novel and, and writing prose and fiction, but I'm curious, 
just in terms of like being a television executive, what, what are your thoughts now? Because television has expanded so much in terms of like the various platforms, everything from Apple plus to Amazon prime to obviously Netflix. You're, you're a hundred percent right. It's such a different landscape. Um, and I think on the one hand, there are tremendous opportunities now because there's so much need for programming that, um, there are many, many different ways in which, uh, young writers and creators can, uh, can get in back when I was doing it, we had basically three networks and then a fourth network Fox. So you were very limited with your ideas. If you shopped at a few places and no one wanted to buy it, you were pretty much dead in the water. But now, um, it's expanded so much. And what is great now is because of the pay channels, because of the premium channels, HBO, Showtime, Apple, Amazon, um, the storytelling can be a lot, A, grittier and B, more powerful, more hard hitting emotionally, but also they have adopted the sort of British model of doing six episodes a season or eight episodes a season. And, uh, that's actually a much nicer way to tell a story because you're not rushed trying to do 22 episodes, which is quite a, quite a lot to uh, take on as a writer producer. Sure. So what was your experience in transforming this from a spec script into a novel? Um, did you use the, the script as kind of your outline when you sat down to write the novel? How did that process work for you? Uh, I did. And interestingly, I'd never heard the term pantser until I listened to your podcast. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I'm not a seat of the pants guy. I, I, uh, I use an outline as a matter of fact, I use a rather in-depth outline. Um, and I don't always stick with it, but it gives me a real strong roadmap to follow. I find that in doing a drama, I'm sorry, in doing a mystery, um, especially one like Gideon, which has multiple storylines, it was really important for me to know when to integrate those stories and, uh, and how to keep the pacing going. Um, but sorry, Jeff, to answer your question. Yes. I use the, the 60 page script as a basic outline, but really, really, really expanded on it, obviously. Well, I'm curious. I mean, given the, the hours that you've written of TV, what, what was different and what was kind of that you discovered, um, in writing this novel that you were like, Oh, like, you know, this is a lot different or, um, uh, from writing a script. Well, one of the questions I had when, uh, when I first launched in was whether I'd enjoy the process because it's truly a different process. Um, and writing the prose, writing the description and writing the inner thoughts of people is something that fortunately I found that I really enjoyed. Um, one of the people who read it early on remarked that, oh, this guy, it, this sort of reads like a script. Now, this person was not in television <laughs> and they never read a script before. Right. But what I got from that was maybe I was a little too dialogue dependent. Um, but I'm a voracious reader, as I know you are, and I assume the people who listen to this are, and there's no, you know, there's no right way or wrong way to tell the story. 
uh, as long as you tell it in a compelling fashion. So I really enjoyed the process a lot more than I thought I was going to, fortunately, because it took me about a year to write this. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Well, um, I would say, first of all, start with a good premise. And the reason I say that is because after having worked at the studios for a long time, and I worked with uh, an executive whose name is familiar, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and uh, Jeff used to say, you know, you can, you if you start with a really good idea, the worst we can do is make it a good movie. Probably we'll make a great movie. If we start with a flawed idea, the movie is never, ever going to be anything better than mediocre. <laughs> I think that applies to novels as well. I think that applies to most art forms, except perhaps maybe painting. I don't know. Um, but start with a strong idea. And you also really need to have, um, in as far as I'm concerned, a strong central character or characters. Um, and even if it's a book that's got a lot of humor in it, you need, I think you need conflict. Sure. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Well, I don't read a lot of nonfiction. Um, interestingly, my wife reads almost exclusively nonfiction. And, um, so we, I can bounce things off of her because she's very knowledgeable about this <laughs> stuff, but, um, I am a big fan of, uh, Greg Hurwitz who writes the orphan novels. Um, I've read everything by John Sanford who writes the prey novels, uh, Michael Connolly. Um, I started early on as a huge fan of Stephen King and I still read Stephen King. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to work with Dean Koontz, uh, and we became friends actually. And I've read all of Dean's novels. So I very much lean in the direction of, um, mystery or thrillers, procedurals. Um, and then I also still lean back on, uh, on the paranormal because that's, I guess, because I did it so long as a producer, I'm still very f fond of that. Sure. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel, Gideon? Uh, my website is Grant. E Rosenberg, that's G R A N T E R O S E N B E R G, uh, dot com. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Grant Rosenberg, author of the debut novel Gideon. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Grant, thanks for doing this interview. Jeff, I really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Absolutely. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Gideon by Grant Rosenberg. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Chapter 62 Pete was slipping on his sport coat when Miguel Urbina entered the homicide bullpen. You heading off for the night? Miguel asked. Pete nodded. Shift's over. Ron took off a little early to read a uh, bedtime story to his grandson. Really? 
It's almost eleven. What time does this kid go to sleep? Pete settled back in his chair. I don't ask. I got a feeling this grandson is a 38-year-old named Monique who works the back bar at Slattery's. But you didn't hear that from me. Miguel spun Ron's chair around and straddled it. Things are heating up in a mission. Someone sprayed the Sereno's clubhouse with an automatic. Aimed high, tattooed the roof line, sending a not-so-subtle message. Why can't these fuckers just text each other instead? Because then I'd be out of a job. Anyone seen Spider? I got a feeling he's at the heart of this. Miguel shook his head. Spider hasn't shown his face, but uh, I got a CI inside the Sereno's. He called earlier to say he was onto something that could defuse the tensions, but he needed a little more time. And that was it? No indication of what he was talking about? Miguel shook his head. He's playing it close until he's sure. I got the idea it was a game changer. Let's hope the game changes fast before these assholes start aiming lower. Oscar Spider Sanchez was holed up in the cramped back room of a small taqueria owned by the uncle of one of the Norteños. He was perched on a sagging sofa, playing Gears of War on Xbox. His thin arms and small hands moved with lightning speed as he slaughtered aliens using an AR-15 with a built-in chainsaw. The violence on the television screen was a throwback to old-fashioned gore. And despite the dismemberment of bodies and the flowing lakes of blood, Spider's face showed no signs of any voyeuristic enjoyment. He was all business, staying sharp. The door opened, and Gizmo entered, along with two of his boys, all carrying heavy duffels. Spider paused the game on a still frame of a four-armed alien who had just been brutally decapitated. You got this stuff? he asked. The duffels were unzipped to reveal hardware. Lots of hardware, ranging from handguns to assault rifles. My cousin came through big time, said Gizmo, a buzz grin spreading over his face. Spider took a nine-millimeter Luger out of the bag and ran his hand over it with admiration, knowing what it could do. Toro know about this? Luis Toro Echeverria was El Jefe. As per his name, he was a bull of a man in his mid-thirties, had done time, made his bones, earned his tears, as they said, and came out of prison with a pipeline of suppliers around the state. He didn't fuck with Toro, but sometimes the underbosses had to take care of business of their own. As long as you didn't steal from La Familia and didn't do anything stupid to bring down heat, Toro was cool. He just wanted his taste. Spider had plans of his own. He'd loop in Toro when the time was right. Gizmo shook his head and swallowed hard. Nobody knows shit about this, I swear. Spider glanced over at the two younger bangers. They nervously shook their heads. He casually pointed the nine at them. They swore on the lives of their mothers that they didn't say a word to anyone. He pulled the trigger. A dry click. The bangers exhaled. Spider smiled. He had work to do. Chapter 63 while Spider and his boys were inspecting their firepower, Nathan Curtis was sitting in his car in the parking lot behind the clinic. A thick cloud cover obscured the waning moon, blanketing the lot in a cloak of darkness. The area was empty, save for a kid dressed in a red sweatshirt who was passing by, smoking a cigarette. Nathan watched as the kid disappeared into the night. The dim light above the clinic's rear door provided the only illumination, so when two hulking figures sidled up, Nathan wasn't sure if they were who he was expecting. Once they started splashing the door with gasoline, his suspicions were confirmed. What are you doing? Nathan asked as he got out of his car. One of the men stepped into the light. It was Burr, Randall's head of security. 
He was holding a gas can, as was his little brother Junior, who tipped the scales at three hundred pounds, much of it former muscle that had long ago lost its tone and turned to fat. I thought my father would try something like this, Nathan said. You don't want to be here, Nathan. Junior reacted. Wait, is this a guy you were telling me about? Your boss's punk-ass son? Nathan boldly approached them. I'm not going to let you guys do this. Burr smiled and dismissively shook his head. Let us? Get the fuck out of here before you get hurt. Junior emptied his 20-gallon can around the base of the clinic door. As Burr joined in, Nathan leapt at him, tried to rip the can away. Burr swatted Nathan with a backhand that felt like a hammer blow. The sickening crunch that accompanied it was the sound of Nathan's nose being relocated. I told you to get the fuck away, Burr bellowed. Dude, Junior loudly whispered, keep it down. Undaunted, Nathan scrambled to his feet and wildly attacked Burr, punching him in the kidney. Burr grunted, then whipped around and brought the heavy can down in a wide overhead arc. When the can connected with Nathan's forearm, the bone snapped like a dry tree branch. Nathan roared in pain, his arm jutting in an obscenely unnatural angle. Bro, Junior growled, your boss is going to be pissed. Burr shook his head. Nah, he hates this little fucker. Burr raised his size 14 Doc Martin, ready to deliver a rib-crushing stomp, when the voice of an 18-year-old cut through the night. Pendejo! Burr and Junior turned to see a skinny Hispanic banger decked out in a white T-shirt underneath a red hoodie. Leave him alone. Burr and Junior exchanged looks and broke into a laugh. Seriously? After we fuck him up, you're next, Spick, Junior said. He held out a fist and Burr dapped him. Spider, the skinny banger, calmly pulled a black mat glock out of his belt. This clinic and the doctors are protected by the Mission Street Norteños, motherfuckers. Nathan was completely taken by surprise at this sudden turn of events. Never was there a time when he was so happy to see a banger brandishing a weapon in his general direction. Burr snatched a Sig Sauer P-229 from a rear holster and aimed it at Oscar. Yeah, well, you might want to get back to your clubhouse, Jose, before I draw a hole in your sorry Norteño ass. Junior had a shit-eating grin spread across his otherwise vacant face. He loved hanging with his older brother, especially when they got a chance to kick some immigrant tail. The grin slowly faded when Junior saw a red wave ripple through the parking lot. What the fuck? Burr's gun hand began to tremble when he realized that Spider hadn't come along. What's wrong, Ojete? said Spider. How many shots you got in that thing? Enough for all of us? There were twenty Nortenos behind him, all packing weapons, and all eager to find any excuse to use them. Burr laid his gun on the ground and slowly raised his hands above his head. Junior followed suit. Spider looked over at Nathan. You okay? Nathan slowly got to his feet. Blood was cascading from his nose, and he was cradling his arm in severe pain. Despite that, he nodded. Okay. Spider signaled to one of his guys. Take him to the hospital. Ahora. Nathan began to protest, but Spider shook his head. We got this. The red wave began to close in. Burr and Junior shared a look. They were so fucked. Chapter 64 The Spreckles Temple of Music, better known as the Bandstand, at Golden Gate Park, was built in 1900 and still featured concerts every Sunday. The rest of the week it was a mecca for tourists, the homeless, and seagulls. When Kelly arrived at 7 a.m., Benedetto was already there amiably chatting with a woman who had the face of a dried apple doll. 
As Kelly approached, he gave the woman a few dollars, which engendered a warm, toothless grin. The woman cheerfully tottered off, and Kelly took a seat next to Benedetto on one of the long green benches. The rest of the benches were devoid of human life. How are you feeling today? he asked. It had only been one day since she murdered Tommy Moretti. Still wondering if things will ever get back to normal? Your father wondered the same thing. If that's supposed to make me feel better, it doesn't. I've read a lot of his journal and his life was anything but normal. Benedetto was well aware of David's constant internal struggle from the moment he killed Musselwhite. He didn't expect Kelly's life would be any easier, regardless of whether she crossed the line again. Did he make a mention of Angelo? Benedetto asked. It was his final entry. If the rumors on the street are true, Angelo is even worse than his cousin. Are they true? Since the time your father would have written that, more details have come to light. There was an eyewitness who reportedly saw Angelo near the rec center with the young girl on the night she died. Then why haven't the police arrested him? The eyewitness was an elderly man, and he died last week. The police could make an arrest, but until they have more concrete evidence, they have no case. So, based upon the account of one old man, you think Moretti's guilty? I think he's guilty based on upon everything I've heard from my sources. He was out of his mind on drugs when he committed this heinous act, and because he suffers from an inferiority complex, he boasted about it. The fact that an 83-year-old man with a bad heart picked him out of a six-pack of police photos was the icing on the cake for me. Kelly still wasn't convinced of Angelo's guilt. The reality was, she didn't know anything about Benedetto's supposed sources, and for that matter, didn't know much about Benedetto himself, except that what he'd told her and what she'd read. Over the years, he'd represented a number of high-profile criminals, but that didn't mean he had reliable contacts, and there was still the possibility that Benedetto was using her. To what end, she didn't know, but the information he came up with felt rather convenient. If Angelo killed that little girl, he deserves to suffer the consequences, but that's not my responsibility. I completely agree. You can walk away any time and let justice run its own course, that's not your concern or mine. I only worry about how Angelo will react once he finds out his cousin is dead. You already laid out the worst-case scenario, and it's only conjecture. Angelo may not have any idea about Gideon's identity. True, but forewarned is forearmed. I'm simply trying to do everything I can to protect you and your sister. Why? Why is our well-being so important to you? I bear the guilt of setting everything in motion. If I hadn't brought your father into this morass years ago, none of this would be happening. He'd still be alive, and you wouldn't be in any jeopardy. This is my doing, and the least I can do is try to make it right. I'll tell you what you can do to make it right. Kill Angelo yourself. I'm not a killer, he responded calmly, like they were having a perfectly normal conversation about the weather. And neither was I until yesterday. Why not join the club? In fact, you could take over my father's legacy. Benedetto shook his head with a mirthless smile. I'm not cut out for it. I lack the expertise, the training, and the drive, all of which you have, whether you believe it or not. Kelly was about to refute his statement when she realized he was right. Her medical expertise and training gave her a skill set, and there was no debating her drive to take out Tommy Moretti and potentially his cousin. If I were to kill Angelo Moretti, where does it end? Oh, hopefully right there. Hopefully? 
No more Morettis are going to emerge from the shadows? Benedetto shook his head. Not that I'm aware of. But I know there's a but. No one can predict what the future holds. Thanks for the fortune cookie wisdom. Benedetto shrugged. It's the best I can do under the circumstances. If you opt to explore the situation with Angelo further, I brought you this. He held out a thumb drive. She looked at it like it was radioactive. It's virus-free, not encoded, and can't be tracked. It's just a four-gig memory stick from Office Depot with some basic information. Kelly surprised herself by taking it and shoving it into her pocket. Oh, and one... Don't say one more thing, please. I can't take one more thing. He smiled. We all have verbal tics. I wanted you to know that sometime today, $9,500 will show up in the clinic's bank account. Kelly's eyes flew wide open. What are you talking about? Don't tell me this is because Tommy... No, it's the final payment for a job your father did last year. How do I explain that income to the accountants? When the dust settles, I'll walk you through the mechanism we set up years ago. It's never raised a flag at the government level, and since the money is used to support a clinic that's running in the red, I highly doubt you'll ever be audited. Kelly was barely functioning on minimal sleep and could hardly pull her thoughts together. All she knew was the sun rose this morning and would probably set tonight. Past that, her future was murky as hell. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.